Welcome to Hallowed Ground Storycast. I'm Anya. And I'm Alan. And this episode is about the first love story I could believe in, the novel Wild Seed by Octavia Butler. She's one of the few people who could probably kill you, just as you're one of the few people who could kill her. Wild Seed is the story of the shape-shifting woman Anyanwu, who leaves her home in Africa to join the body-swapping man Doro in his quest to breed a race of gifted people who could live forever. Anyanwu quickly learns that Doro considers everyone around him to be a slave and struggles to find a way to escape him. Doro dominates and hunts her for over a century before she finally submits to him, and he realizes that she means more to him than anyone else ever could. (laughs) If that sounds dark, this story is pretty dark, and maybe a warning to people (laughs) who haven't read the book or anything, but we might get into some triggering subjects uh, around issues like incest or issues of consent or rape. Uh, The book is like, it's pretty heavy in some ways, and there's a lot of stuff going on, especially like with domination and abuse. Wild Seed is a little bit of a strange book because it's part of a science fiction fantasy series. Um, However, with most series, the chronological order of the series usually follows like the publishing order or the same characters are followed throughout the series. So, for example, like in our show, we've talked about Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the events of season one precede season two and season three. And, you know, those events like build on each other and are called back to constantly and have consequences rolling forward for the most part. That's not true for Wild Seed. It was published in 1980 as part of the Patternist books. Octavia Butler's very first novel that she ever got published was called Pattern Master, which is uh, actually chronologically speaking the final book in the series. But it was the first book that was ever published like at all in in her entire uh, bibliography. And so like if you read her books as they came out, you would know the ending of this timeline before you read this book, which is the beginning of the timeline and was the third book written out of five books in the series. Uh, So it's really weird. And actually the characters of Anyanwu and Doro don't even carry over into the all of the other books they're only in two books uh total so huh that's really interesting um so have you read all of the patternist timeline yeah the book that comes right after this uh which is called mind of my mind is my favorite of the patternist books and i don't think that the patternist series is actually like her strongest stuff you know which makes sense because it's some of her earliest work but it's still it's great but yeah, I've read all of them. The Pattern Master is, is weird because it takes place like 200 years in the future. It's like post-apocalyptic and psychics have enslaved humanity. Like there's psychic people and then there's people called mutes who are people who don't have abilities and they're slaves to people who have psychic abilities. And then there are these other people who were infected by like a, an alien plague who are like monsters it's it's bizarre. It's a really weird book. That's so interesting. And it also really explains why this is really considered sci-fi. Because I guess, mm-hmm. you know, most of the time people think of sci-fi as being more future looking and fantasy as being like more 
past looking or just like completely alternate universe. And this is very much like a backwards looking fantasy novel, which is sort of unique. It feels fantasy, doesn't it? Yeah. I can imagine that if I read Pattern Master, it would like feel much more sci-fi just because it's set in the future, even though it's this exact same universe. Mm-hmm. It's weird, too, because she creates world-building rules, which she has to follow in this book, even though this takes place before those events. And you know what I mean? Like, kind of like with the Star Wars, you know, like... George Lucas went back in time in his timeline and told the story of like the older Jedi during the old Republic. And he, but he still had to follow the same rules about how the force works and how spaceships work and stuff like that. She had to do the same thing, even though like a lot of those rules didn't have anything to do with the story she was telling. Like there's a mm-hmm. lot of little details that I'm like, Oh, right. Yeah. That, cause that's how the patternist society works. But those things don't really have anything to do with, the themes of this book, but they still exist because they are important in the later books in the timeline or they they need to be consistent. You know what I mean? Yeah. I will say it definitely felt like a prequel. It wasn't that I didn't enjoy the book or didn't find it really captivating and interesting, but it definitely felt a bit more like world building and character building than something that's was super plot driven like the climax was a little bit underwhelming Mm -hmm. everybody i've ever given this book to pretty much says that uh yeah it's not like super disappointing it's just like very neutral just like oh i guess this book is over now huh Mm -hmm. and you're right like a lot of the narrative is focused on the act of transition right so like in order for these special people to acquire their powers they they go through this thing called transition which is like really painful and it happens kind of like a a puberty except it's like really quick over a couple days Mm -hmm. and it seems like it plays a really prominent part in the novel but like doesn't actually come to anything and the idea of transition really sticks out as something that is like plays a big role in the novel, but doesn't actually do anything. And I'm assuming that that's also something that was sort of like put in there because it's more meaningful and important in later books. Yeah, it it is exactly that. Because the next book, Mind of My Mind, and it's about like a transition of power and all of these people who are going through transitions. And yeah, the transitions are a huge part of that book and a huge part of the metaphor of that book so they have to be here because that book was written before this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they have to follow the same rules. And then in Pattern Master, the transitions are trivial. Like they don't even, they take like a minute to happen. Oh, really? Because they've like figured it all out. Oh, mm-hmm. that's so funny. Yeah, they've they've figured out how to do They're still there. So they were there from the beginning, but they take like a second. Like it's it's not even a problem because they've got it all figured out. In the interest of of raising some controversy and maybe having some interesting conversation, uh, tell me how you feel about the Star Wars prequels, because I feel like those are probably <laughs> uh, the prequels that people are going to uh, most have opinions about. And when you hear the word prequel, like that's kind of what you think of. Yeah, I actually really like the Star Wars prequels, but most people hate them, of course. I think that those movies are much more ambitious and have like a lot more going on idea wise. 
but like the execution of them is really poor. Like I wouldn't argue with people who are like the dialogue is terrible and stuff like that, but I'm more likely to watch a prequel than I am the older movies. Really? I know a lot of people too were really upset about the whole Metachlorian thing as far as sort of oh, like yeah. having a consistent mythology versus like going back and, and sort of like rewriting it. Yeah, that's so interesting too, because like his whole obsession with like the way that those stories were inspired was like from ancient mythology. And I think the way that he approached the storytelling in that series has a lot to do with the way that mythology like actually worked in the ancient world before writing, where you would just retell these stories over and over and they would kind of slowly change and evolve. You would find out like, like the story from a hundred years ago would not be the same as the story as people would tell it now. And so it was kind of like that when he would come out with different versions, like Han shot first, Han didn't shoot first. And <laughs> I don't know, like there's a meta thing to me there and then people are just getting mad about it. And I'm like, Oh, that's really interesting. Like in the way that people tell stories, he probably didn't mean that at all, but like, that's me seeing too deeply into stuff. Interesting. Also, I feel like we should just say the name George Lucas out loud because you didn't. Oh, yeah. George Lucas made Star Wars, you guys. He totally <laughs> did. Actually, that transitions pretty nicely into because we were talking about like the difference between science fiction and fantasy and Star Wars like straddles this line that I think that the Patternist series like this book's very fantasy, but later it gets really sci fi when like aliens invade at one point in this timeline. And the reason that I found this book was because I read another book, uh, which was called How to Write Science Fiction and Fantasy when I was a teenager, um, a little slim how-to book by the science fiction and fantasy author Orson Scott Card. And a lot of people might know his name, speaking of controversy. Oh, yeah. Because, <laughs> because he was involved in like a larger scandal in the speculative fiction world about a group of people called the Sad Puppies who were trying to weight the vote in the Hugo Awards. These guys would vote as a block to vote against uh, more diverse authors or uh, marginalized, you know, intersectional authors who might be people of color or uh, queer people, you know, that kind of thing. They would vote against them and vote for more mainstream works to try and like change the direction, the perceived direction of like the genre as a whole. And Orson Scott Card was a part of that whole movement in a in the conservative direction where he was speaking out against LGBTQ people and against uh, at that time, President Barack Obama. And like, he's a very staunch conservative. So I read the Ender's Game series, like at least three or four of those books in high school. And I really loved them. Mm -hmm. And then I remember finding out a few years later that he was sort of like rapidly homophobic and being super disappointed. And I guess, you know, that might actually have been my first experience and like being really disappointed in the politics of someone whose art I had really loved and enjoyed. It's so tricky, right? I mean, I've read a bunch of his stuff and it's pretty good. And this book, How to Write Science Fiction and Fantasy, is okay uh, it's an all right book. I think Lonnie Diane Rich is like a way better way to go, even though it's not specific to like the concerns of science fiction and fantasy. But the reason that I found Wild Seed is because in that book, just like Lonnie does with her series, How Story Works, 
she cites, you know, different movies and, uh, you know, television shows and stuff like that in her work to illustrate the principles that she's talking about. He does that too. And he uses wild seed and a couple of his own novels. And so he's constantly referencing wild seed. Like this is how you do a reveal about a character's backstory with Doro. And this is how you explain the, you know, magical powers of your character, like with Anyanwu. And so I was like, what is this book? I've never heard of it. Ah, that's really cool. And also kind of ironic that this sort of like rapidly homophobic and like white supremacist author is basically using a book by a black lesbian as his main example. Right. Yeah, it's so weird. And she had won awards and stuff um, by that time. So, I mean, she was well respected and, and God knows she had to fight for her spot. It's not like you know, affirmative action let her into the writing world. I mean, she's an amazing author. She had to be like the most kick-ass author to get her place because she's already got so much going against her. And I, I'm pretty sure that at the time, like her sexuality was a secret. It's more of like an openly known thing now, especially since she's uh, passed away. But the book is kind of queer in its whole approach to sex, I think. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. So... At some point, I don't know if his politics hardened or something, but. So you said a little bit about how the first time you read this book, you thought it was a love story. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So because like I said, of I wanted to understand better how to write science fiction and fantasy, because when I was a teenager, I was already interested in being an author and I loved fantasy and I really wanted to write that. And, you know, like I knew who Orson Scott Card was and I was like, oh, I'm going to read this book and try and figure it out. And so I, that led me to Wild Seed. And then um, reading the book, the structure of the book hops from Anyanwu's point of view to Doro's pretty much like every other chapter is like it goes one, then the other, one, then the other. And you get to see how each of them think and that structure is like a pretty typical structure if you read like a harlequin romance which i had read a bunch of those by that time because they were lying all over my house uh from my stepmom so when i read it like most fantasy books are not like that they're either from one character or they're from like a million character point of views like uh Game of Thrones, like a song of ice and fire yeah, or something yeah. like that, you know, it's usually not the male and female leads circling each other uh, in a fantasy book. That's like exactly how you do a romance book. And so you get because you get like this weird narrative tension where you know that they're both into each other, but for whatever reason, they can't admit it to each other. And so you're like, when are they going to get together? That's like part of the whole experience. I mean, that's not the experience in this book, but the structure made me think like, oh, this is romantic because that's the only other structure I had ever seen in a book where you would hop between the man and the woman. So right off the bat, I thought it was romantic. Well, when they're on the boat crossing over from Africa to New York, 
Isaac, mm-hmm. uh, who's one of Doro's sons, does make the point that he sees how Anyanwu and Doro are kind of like well matched for each other, right? They're both either immortal or relatively immortal beings and have much stronger powers than anyone else around them. And so like from a sort of like exceptionalism point of view, they are more well matched to each other than anyone else is. And so I can see how, like, mm-hmm. if you go in thinking it's going to be a romance, you read that and you think, like, oh, this is foreshadowing. Like, this is definitely where it's going to end up. But then, like, the rest of their interactions for 90% of the book are just so fucked up that right. <laughs> I definitely did not perceive it as a romance even in spite of that. Right. One of the first things they do when they meet each other is hook up. But even though her initial experience of him is very, like, alarming, she's, like scared of him right away mm-hmm. i was just gonna say it's not really a meet you <laughs> is... no they're, getting, they're both getting ready to kill each other <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, yeah it's very scary uh but they do like they have a chemistry at the beginning of the book and they do um sleep together and she kind of considers herself married to him like within the first chapter or so. Yeah, but she's also had 12 husbands before that. So like being married isn't that big of a deal to her. <laughs> right. Yeah, she's like, she's 300 years old and it's like, yeah, one more husband. Why not? Um, yeah, it's as I was reading through this book and like, and then I was like, is this a love story? I don't know. And then I was like, well, it's like Doro and Anyanwu and and the Buffy Spike storyline in the sense of that like they are like initially trying to kill each other when they meet and they're both like very exceptional <laughs> uh powerful people they're both like the one other being that has the power to kill the other one but they don't end up doing it for some reasons which are like kind of unexplained but mostly have to do with their just like gut feelings towards each other there are so many differences between the two, but there's also some like weird similarities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's lots of stories, you know, that are like that where the like a lot of sexual tension is built in, but there's antagonism, yeah. you know, like at the same time, like real antagonism. These two, these two also hate each other. Yeah. <laughs> like they really hate each other sometimes. But the other reason that I saw this, like, even when I got to the end, I was, especially when I got to the end, I was like, oh, this is, this is actually like more of a love story than any love story I've ever seen before. Because like other love stories to me had always seemed fake. Like the prince waking up the princess with a kiss or something like that kind of fake. Where even though I read like Harlequin romances and stuff, which you know, might not be like the most healthy and balanced like picture of romance that anybody could have, but um, you would probably say would be healthier than this. Uh, To me, those seemed fake. And the reason they seemed fake was because of the household that I was raised in and um, my, the way that my father treated me. And he is to me, he is very, very much like Doro, um, who dominates everyone around him, not just physically, but like emotionally. And the thing that he demands the most, Doro does from everybody, is obedience and submission. 
And if you give him those things, then he'll let you do whatever you want, basically. Mm-hmm. And especially to the people that he loves, he gives them the most freedom because he knows that he has the most control over them. Uh, so for like, for example, Isaac, who you mentioned earlier, has like the most latitude to talk back to him because he also submits to what Doro wants. He's allowed to be a more complete person because of that submission. Mm-hmm. And his main antagonism with Anyanwu is because she defies him. She has her own way that she wants to do things. She doesn't consider herself to be his property. And that's the main struggle in the book is to tear down, um, from from Doro's perspective, is to tear down that resistance in Anyanwu. And to me, like, the, the thing about this book is, and what I think most people don't understand who have not been in a long-term abusive relationship is that there can be authentic love between a person who is abusive and the person that they abuse, like between both Mm -hmm. people, you know, the love is like deeply dysfunctional. And I think that a lot of people see it as monstrous, like, like a man beats his wife and is like, Oh, he's like a dog. He's like an animal. And that woman is like, not a full person to let herself be treated that way as if there's nothing, you know, kind of between them that is, you know, real and human and emotional and loving. This book to me is like a really excellent picture of what that relationship is. And I had never read anything like that before. Like I'm convinced that Octavia Butler was in some kind of abusive relationship to be able to capture this so completely because they do care about each other, Doro and Anyanwu. They hate each other and they love each other and they're like trapped by each other and they want to get away from each other. They want to be rid of each other, but they need each other too. In uh, all of these like broken ways that is exactly what it was like to be loved by my father. And so when I read this book, I was like, oh, this is how you are in love with another person romantically. Like one person is in charge and destroys the other person and that person submits to them and then they can, you know, do whatever that other person wants them to do. And then they get, they're allowed to be like as much of a person as they can be without getting in the way of the other person. And that's love. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and because like Anyanwu really does have to give up you know, like, so much of what she sees as, like, her own identity and what she really values in order to just stay alive. Yeah, especially up until the midpoint with Isaac mm-hmm. and their daughter in Weke. Like, after she dies, then, like, Doro's done. Like, he, he's he's pissed at everything that he's lost. He's done with her defiance. Mm-hmm. And he's going to kill her. And she splits. But the thing that breaks my heart in the story is like the way it ends. And the when it 
when I read it now, it breaks my heart. But at the time that I read it the first time, it seemed very romantic to me that she like he he completely exposes himself to her and like there's this supernatural sequence where it's like their souls are mingling like he almost kills her mm-hmm. in this kind of um spiritual plane or something and he does like his body hopping thing but not completely to her and then after that she just gives up and like she just is going to kill herself not only does she like fully submit to him she's like yeah whatever you want i don't care like i'll give you a child but she also gives up on life mm-hmm. she's like i'm just i'm done and then to me that was like oh you've you've finally done it you finally learned the correct way to love someone else is to not care about yourself at all and just give up on everything including life and do whatever they want and like that was my model for like when i find the right person i'll give up on everything in life and be like that for them and like because that's how it was in my household like you just gave up everything to do what he wanted and if you didn't you know then you would get beaten up uh or you, or like everything else was emotional domination mm-hmm. Uh, to get you to the point of capitulation. So like I read this and I was like, oh, this is the first real and true story of like how to love a person that I've ever seen and not recognizing at all that it's completely messed up. Yeah, because the love is so destructive. And in the Harlequin romance novels, I mean, like Harlequin romance novels are the Disney version of love. And this is sort of like, I don't know, the Quentin Tarantino version of love or something. This is horrible. Like it's not love at all. Like it's it's awful. It's um yeah, it's really, really bad. And it took me a long time to learn that it was bad. Like I didn't I didn't understand. Um but I will say that I've read this book many, many times. I want to say after I found it. I don't know if I was reading it every year after the first year that I found it, but certainly by the time I got into college, I would read this again every year because the book just spoke to me, this dysfunction between them. I was like, this is, there's something here that I'm not like, I need to keep coming back to this. And every time I would come back to it, I would find uh, new things. You know, some of them were like writerly things, but a lot of them were, just how to be a human being and how to work my way through the abuse. Because as much as Doro is an example of like how not to be a person, like how to embody toxic masculinity and try and dominate other people and use them like animals and like objects, Anyanwu is like such a powerful portrait of resistance and resilience and unending love and caring for almost everyone around her and she's like Mm -hmm. she's very pragmatic and her love for people does not mean that she's gentle or that she can never kill or won't defend herself it's like it's a very it's a version of i mean i hesitate to say femininity but it's a it's a version of like whole human personhood that feels very 
real and strong and loving and is like yeah i guess portrayed somewhat as a version of femininity but also as as something that that anybody of of any gender could appreciate and try to emulate Mm -hmm. yeah and i think um isaac is a lot like that who ends up being her husband and is a good example yeah that's a good point yeah of a man doing that too yeah yeah, I can even remember like when I was in college reading it one time and realizing I was like, no, wait, this is not romantic. Like this is bad. And and then being shocked by that and like kind of reevaluating a lot of things in my life when I when I saw it that way. And I was like, oh, because I knew on a certain level, like, you know, when you're being abused, like this is not good and this is, you know, not normal. But at the same time, like I was in my father's household from the time that I was in third grade and it, you know, like I was just twisted up in a way where that's how you show affection to somebody is to submit to them. And the degree of submission is the degree of love. And, you know, like I'm still unwinding a lot of that to this day. I feel like Anyanwu's special ability to go inside of herself and change herself is also kind of a metaphor um, for like what you could do with a lot of effort to your own personality. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but in the same way that like Doro is always trying to get people to submit to his will and like change the world around him to the way he wants it to be. Mm-hmm. on Yanwu is like the opposite side of that flexibility right like she's always changing herself to be what she needs in that moment yeah and she's very focused on the here and now and the people um in her community and not like this long long view that Daro has which is really a way of him like distancing himself from other people so that it's easier for him uh to kill them you know because he doesn't really have a choice about his nature. Um, and it, I don't know if the if the book is, you know, I'm kind of sitting here saying like, oh, and this shows you like how to deal with, with this abusive thing. Like, I'm not sure that that's really true um, because there's a way to read this book that says like the abused person should try to heal the abuser. Mm-hmm. Like that would be a way that you could look at the end of this book that she brings him to a place where he finally, you know, by by killing herself and he can't stop that from happening um, or threatening to kill herself because she doesn't kill herself. It brings him to a place of vulnerability where he can love her and be more human with her than he's ever been. And it takes everything for her to do that for him. And she's a healer, like that's her character. And, Mm -hmm. you know, did she heal him? Did she heal some part of what he is and make him more human and less monster? And is that the way that an abused person should deal with their abuser? I don't think so. I don't think that's good. Yeah, I definitely don't (laughs) think so. I don't agree with that. (laughs) But I think that's a way that you can read it. And honestly, like I've read this book so many times 
what I think is going there is going on there is even more sinister that he doesn't I think that he does love her at the end but I think that that act of love is like the final attempt to dominate her like he gives her what she wants so that he can keep her and um mm-hmm. keep her around and not let her kill herself like he gives her as much as he Oh I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he realized at the end that she was the only person who could ever live long enough to provide him actual companionship. He could never have a relationship with another person that was even close to being equals with them. And he realized that the only way to keep her from killing herself, because his domination was killing her spirit slowly and she had basically just given up his only way to keep her alive was to stop dominating her so it wasn't i mean Mm -hmm. she kind of got what she wanted but it's not it's not like a beautiful selfless thing like it was a super selfish choice yeah i mean like in the one sense she won because she got him to stop being a giant dickwad to her (laughs) but also it's not like it reflects well on him and she's not the same at the end like she was a more whole person at the beginning of the book than she is at the end yeah yeah no she's she is he has definitely changed her for the worse i think it shows somehow like the relationship really between love and respect right like he could not love somebody who he didn't see as his equal And then once he was forced to see her as his equal by the fact that she was going to take something from him that he wanted for the first time in his whole life, he was kind of forced to love her. Mm -hmm. Um, But he didn't really want to. It just kind of happened. I think there's definitely something interesting in here about what it takes to unlearn patriarchy. Oh, yeah. Patriarchy Um, is all over this. Like on purpose, I think. I think maybe part of what the book is saying is that like in order to unlearn patriarchy, you have to be threatened in some way. Like it's not a choice that you, that people tend to make unless they're like under duress in some way. I found the book really interesting because sometimes the same metaphors are operating kind of on different levels. So there's sort of like the male-female patriarchal interaction between Doro and Anyanwu. And then there's also a similar kind of relationship between Doro and just like all of humanity, male (laughs) and female, in the sense that like, of sort of like why the patriarchy exists, right, is because women have control of reproduction in a way that men don't. Mm -hmm. And so then in order to have power and control reproduction, men have to control women. That's the same kind of relationship that exists between Doro and the rest of humankind. Like he can't really reproduce in a typical way because he's just constantly having um, to shred bodies and find a new host to inhabit. And so he has to to dominate all of humans in order to control their reproduction. And the like weird obsession with sort of like breeding and it's just, it's really interesting. Like this book was published in 1980 and this series comes out of like the late 1970s. And you think about 
um, the African-American community coming out of the late 60s and all through the 70s, while there was certainly like an ascension, there was also uh, like a cultural ascension and the integration of like educational institutions. You know, there was also like race riots and um, there was a lot of like unrest about black people in America. And there was also like a drug epidemic was slowly growing. And I think part of what you saw in that whole thing was a lot of black men being targeted by, you know, the police uh, for Mm -hmm. incarceration. Um, There was like a certain amount of persecution that had always been happening, but it was like a little bit more intense at that point. And like a breakdown of black families was also happening. And you can kind of see this modeled in Doro where he, you know, like a, like a bee going from flower to flower. He travels between these communities. He's never like, he's just having children all over the place and pairing people up, but never making families. He's like, got a kid here. He's got a kid there. And it's like, he only cares about all of these kids. He doesn't care about the people who the kids are, if that makes sense. Yeah. And kind of the fragmentation that was going on in a larger black community. I feel like Butler is saying something about that in Doro's behavior and contrasting it with the way that Anyanwu creates an actual community. But you see what I'm saying? That um, yeah, 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 I definitely do. It's really interesting the role that race plays in this book. I feel like it's a book that only a black American author would think to write. And I really loved the fact that that sort of like slavery and race relations are not necessarily the focus of the story, but provide the background setting and are really important as world building, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought it was really cool the way that he sort of like gets Anyanwu from Africa to New York, where um, it's sort of like a reimagining of the Middle Passage story where she actually has some sort of agency. Like, yes, she's making the trip under duress, but, you know, it's the least bad of all the choices that she gets to make. And she's not making it really as as a slave and like the literal way that most people made that journey. It's kind of like a powerful way of of yeah, like reimagining someone getting to participate that in a different way. Mhm. I think he even says that to her in like a really shitty way. He's like, "Oh, you don't know how good you have it on this passage between these two continents." Like <laughs> Most of the time they're chained up and they're all down there. Like as if he, sh- as if she should be grateful th- that yeah. she wants to run away. And um, yeah. It really allows Octavia Butler to focus on like the traumatic parts of that journey that are the less physical and less obvious ones, right? That like being forced to move from your homeland to a place that you have like never been before and can't even imagine. And you're totally alienated. And there's maybe like one person who kind of speaks a language that you can kind of understand, but you also don't really know them. But then you have this amazing bond Mm -hmm. with them. But it's like, it's like all of that sort of like, like still super deep and important and meaningful trauma that I think a lot of times gets really covered up by the fact that like, oh, 
40% of the slaves died and they were literally chained up and beaten. But like, it's a really traumatic thing, even if you're not literally tied up and beaten. And by giving her some agency and having her make a different kind of middle passage, Octavia Butler gets to explore that more. Yeah, and in models like a more immigrant experience for her too, where she's more comfortable around her people than she is yeah. yeah, with the white women when she comes across. And there's the whole thing of like when she eats the foreign food, she's really uncomfortable with it. She has to like constantly change her ways and make accommodations for mm-hmm. new people and new traditions. So there's like a lot of like the American immigration story baked into yeah. this story. Yeah. And I think it's really cool too, that because the story takes place over hundreds of years, you can really see like, the evolution of how black people were treated in the U.S., right? Like when she first shows up in New York, like there are black people, but not all of them are slaves. And the the racial hierarchy like hadn't really been solidified yet in quite the same way that later on when she's like, you know, has her own plantation, like but with a cooperative plantation, I guess, uh, in Louisiana. Mm-hmm how the early colonial period really like turned into the antebellum south and how those experiences were were really different for her as a black woman living through time and yeah and how at the beginning she could be a black woman but then at that point she had to be a white man you know like part of the time to get anything done and how when i really like the part where she's and it's almost like a flashback really but where she is at the slave market trying to figure out who she's going to buy. She's in the body of a white man or she, you know, like she appears to be a white man. And then one of the psychic people like recognizes her mentally. uh, And then she has to realize that she was thinking like a white man. She wasn't even like bothered by all the human suffering around her and all the slavery and, you know, the suffering of all these people. Like she had gotten used to it basically. And then yeah. she was like, "Ugh, what, what am I like? Ugh. So one of the quotes that I thought really spoke to this was early on Doro um, comes back to the, their village in New York wearing a new body. And he says, you know, like this is an American body. He smiled as though he had made a joke, a mixed body, white and black and Indian. And that like, mm-hmm. you know, there's this weird narrative of the united states being settled as like a white country for white people and like on some level that is true because that's who has power but like if you look at it that like really the american body is a mixed body it's white and black and indian and now even more different kinds of people oh and even like there are certain points where like doro is talking to some of his other like he calls them sons but mm-hmm. you know they're like just people that he favors and people like Thomas the guy who lives out in the woods who's like very concerned about Anyanwu's race and like oh I don't want to be with you because you're black and Doro like tells people like oh I could tell you things about your ancestry that would really upset you yeah <laughs> and that's kind of the story of most Americans is even yeah. people who think they're white are not are not white in that exactly. way. 
One of my other favorite quotes um, that really speaks to Anyan Wu's resilience. And so it's this is when she's still in Africa, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of from the narrator's perspective says that when her enemies came to kill her, she knew more about survival than they did about killing. Oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. I love all the stuff with Anyan Wu's powers where... If you understand the finer science of the body and like, like clearly Butler is making references to like microbiology and DNA Mm -hmm. in ways that Anyan Wu doesn't know how to articulate. And there's, you know, the discoveries haven't been made, but she has been making like certain discoveries about how to change everything about her body to where she can become animals she can become other people, like completely become those people, kind of clone them in a way with her own body. Yeah, yeah. And that she's like, in the way that she can like both change just her outward appearance, but like maintain her sense of self and and like produce children mm-hmm. that are authentic to like who she was born as. Or she can literally change her whole body and and produce children that are completely unrelated to her or you know or produce baby dolphins that are you know not even human yeah and she can like make anti-venom she can you know like fight bacteria and stuff like like that antibodies did you catch the reference to her using penicillin oh yeah i did notice it this time um I can't remember what they call it, but it wasn't. Yeah, someone had some sort of. I so I think someone had maybe like a a lung infection, probably like pneumonia or something. And she was like, "Oh yeah, I made a medicine out of mold." Right. Yeah, she said like citrus mold or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I love all that stuff. Like Octavia Butler is a science uh, fiction author at heart, and so she throws mm-hmm. in all these like technical details that are really good. Even though this book is more fantasy. She still keeps it where I feel like Anyan Wu's power is probably like pretty impossible on a metabolic, you know, kind of way. But she makes it feel possible by including details that help me believe in it better. Like yeah. that. Yeah. And I love the way that she is just like in complete and total control of her own reproduction and how when she got like pissed at Doro and she was like well I don't want to have your kids anymore and she's like I'm just gonna shrivel up my fallopian tubes right (laughs) she's like go ahead and kill me this body won't do anything for you and he gets so angry he's like "Ugh, I did not think of that like yeah she yeah she just blocks him uh constantly yeah and I see the like one of the big themes for me every time I've read the book is couched in that antagonism where I feel like they are intentionally written as like these polar opposites. Like you were saying, Doro has this very wide view and Anyanwu has this very narrow view. I feel like Anyanwu is quintessentially female in a way and Doro is male. Like those are their primary genders. Mm-hmm. And like she is like life. You know, she can become any person. She can become animals all without killing and doro is like death like all he can do is kill Mm -hmm. um and she's selfless he's selfish she's a healer he's a destroyer like they're just they're very mythic in a in a wide way of what human beings are 
the mm-hmm. the two of them together are like kind of contain everything. Um, and she's very like human and embodied in a way that he is more of like a spirit. And by the end of the book, he's, you kind of see him like a God, like, you know, people sacrifice to him and she's worshiped as a God, like in the beginning of the book, but it's, she thinks it's funny and uh, yeah. a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> and, and he thinks it's like his due, but when he brings her into like, that weird spiritual place he appears like a a sun or she calls him the morning star which in the bible that's what uh satan is referred to as the morning star oh i didn't know that Uh, yeah so he's like that's clearly like to me that i don't think that's an accident like because he's clearly kind of this satanic force and she seems like a more positive force in the world to me too so there's like this mythic Thing between them through the whole book for me that also makes it feel more fantasy than sci-fi mm-hmm. yeah going going back to their um male and female archetypes and sort of like doro as a symbol of the patriarchy um when he finally like finds her and rediscovers her on the plantation in louisiana the way that he is just like so upset at her that she had the audacity to like run away from him and try and create her own community. Like his response is, do you think you can take over the work that I've spent millennia at? Like, how dare you think that you can even try to do the thing (laughs) that I have been doing? Like, it's just like classic patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And then her, her response of like, do you think I want to, like, I'm not even trying to emulate you. I'm just trying to do what I want. Like, he sees any evidence of independence on her behalf as like her trying to unseat him and take him over. And she's like, I don't even care about you and your like stupid domination. Like, I'm just trying to be me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not trying to make a nation. I'm just trying to have a home. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know. Something about that interaction just struck me as like such such like classic patriarchal bullshit. Yeah. And like the way the way that that men react you know like even with all this me too stuff recently it's like what are you trying to do like get all men fired and it's like well i mean (laughs) i guess so but no i'm just trying not to be harassed in my life yeah 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 or like are you guys just trying to take over and make it so like women are in charge of everything and you guys are oppressing men and it's like no i'm not trying to rebuild the same system that you built but with us in charge like that's not my goal (laughs) My goal is to like dismantle that system and create something that looks completely different. What do you mean? This is the only way to do it. This is the only way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're obviously just trying to do exactly what I've been doing, but you're clearly not as good as it because I've been doing it for the past hundreds and thousands of years. Because there's only one way to do things and that's my way. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely like the god of the patriarchy and he's like an embodiment of the patriarchy. It's funny. I was talking about this book with um, our friend and friend of the show, um, Dr. Kelly Jones. I was saying how like Doro is quintessentially male and Anyanwu is female. And she was like, no, that's not right. And I was like, what do you mean that's not right? She's like, because they can both change their genders so fluidly and they're constantly like changing into men and into women 
And really, this is like a more human thing that men could be just like Anyanwu and women could be just like Doro. It's a human thing. And it's not necessarily like a male patriarchy thing. It's that women could be slave masters and human breeders and men, you know, like, for example, Isaac could be Mm -hmm. good community builders who are, you know, at the heart of a healthy uh, and stable household and uh, township and stuff like that. And I was like, well, well, damn you for being right. Um, Because that (laughs) like unseats my whole way of looking at this book. But I think it is a fair point that gender is very fluid in this book. Yeah. Uh, And the sexuality of the characters is also fluid to a degree. Like they talk about Doro wants her to like, let's, let's swap genders and do it like that and see what that's like. And she's like, that would be an abomination. But then Uh, later on in the book, she ends up like taking a wife and fathering children and like a, and like having a really meaningful relationship with Denise, I think was her name. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's so interesting that um, that Octavia Butler was a lesbian. And uh, I don't know if those kind of things would have occurred to um, a straight author at that time, you know, in the late 1970s and early 80s to swap, have characters who could swap their gender and would swap their gender in a meaningful way, like, like you said, when she's mm-hmm. with that character and... Um, and she goes on in other books to write things that are more explicitly uh, queer um, for her protagonists in other books. But there's, I think there's a lot of queerness in this book that's not just around the swapping of genders. Something else that really spoke to me was something that Anyanwu narrates to the reader um, the last time she encounters Dora at the end of the book. She says that Doro had marveled over the fact that she seemed unchanged, as though he was only now beginning to realize that she was only slightly more likely to die than he was, and not likely at all to grow decrepit with age, as though her immortality had been emotionally unreal to him until now, a fact he had accepted with only half his mind. And I just, I've been thinking a lot lately about sort of different kinds of knowing and and like intellectual knowing versus emotional knowing because I feel like I had a moment very similar to that recently during this whole me too sexual harassment thing of like finally like really emotionally understanding like what it it really means to be a black woman and and the double jeopardy of being both a racial minority and a woman at the same time like I feel you know like intellectually I knew that that being black gave you a lot of economic and and like cultural hardship as far as like being able to participate fully in society and like having you know like getting jobs and having microaggressions against you and and macroaggressions against you all the time. (laughs) And I, and I knew that it was, you know, like hard to be a woman and, and like having sexual harassment, having people not think that you're capable because you're a woman, but like the full weight of like what that actually means to have to deal with like the full weight of both those things at the same time. 
like I feel like I finally I just like got it in a way that I had never really gotten it before and so yeah I guess just like in the context of like of thinking about that and then reading this book which which touches so much on issues of race and gender and then to like read that um that passage about sort of like different kinds of knowing and intellectual versus emotional knowing I just I thought it was really powerful man I've hit that exact quote different ways at different points in my life because like I said when the first time that I read this I feel like I emotionally understood this book completely like probably in a way that Octavia Butler would have never guessed that a teenage white boy would, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but I did not intellectually understand it. Like I completely misunderstood it intellectually. Like I did not recognize it for what it was. I, you know, like I said, I thought it was a romantic book and I didn't, I didn't see it intellectually for the, the story that it really is. So it can be like both sides of that coin, you know, like sometimes you come to an intellectual understanding of something first and then you grok it emotionally later, Mm -hmm. but it can, you can come at it from the other way too. And I think sometimes that's the situation of people who are actually in that community and in that situation that to them, you know, just like for me reading this book, like this is just reality and there is no way out. You submit to it and that's the system And the best you can do is survive it and endure. And it's not until you come to a more intellectual awakening to the reality of your situation can you take power and change it and, you know, make the changes in yourself that are necessary too. So that's a fantastic quote. Which one, uh, okay, of all the five patternist books, which one do you think is like the best book itself as just like a standalone I think Mind of My Mind, the book that comes right after this, is is like the most compelling one. Okay. Um, it it has a lot of the same energy as this book, mm-hmm. but it has like a way better ending. Like you were saying how the ending is kind of because really the ending has no choice but to fit into the next story, which already existed. And yeah. that book, it's not true for that book. Like that book could end the way that it wanted to end. Because there was nothing else compelling it, to, you know, to take a certain shape. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the energy is the same. Like Doro's the primary antagonist and there's a black female lead. Like that would be a cool story. Okay. Well, you know, I would definitely be interested in reading that. Yeah, maybe we'll see. We'll see about doing another show and it. We'll see if people even like this one. <laughs> <laughs> when you only do 12 shows a year, it's like you got to choose them carefully, which is honestly like part of the design of the show, right? Because like, I think uh, purposely I wanted to be more selective in the content that we talked about and make sure that like everything that we talked about, we were like super passionate about and a story that was really compelling to us. So, Yeah. God, this book means so much to me. Like, I'm super grateful that you read the book and wanted to talk about it because like, like I said, I've read it like almost every year and reading this book has like really been like as every time that I read it, I can remember the other times that I read it and I can see like the personal growth 
in me from that point where I was like, oh, this is completely how people should treat each other to the point now where I'm like, uh, these two terribly broken people who can't get their shit together. You know, oh, that's awesome. Right? I can see it. Yeah, I can see all the dysfunction in it now. So it's great to talk about. It. I'm so happy to share it with people. I hope they read it and it. You know, like in getting ready to do this, like I went online and and looked for like, have other people ever read this book? And of like, of course, because Octavia Butler is so important Mm -hmm. in science fiction and fantasy, like tons of people have read this and like analyzed it. And there's like lots of different YouTube things that I watched about like different people's takes on it. And I was like, oh, this is fascinating. So like if you read this book and you want to like engage with it, there's lots of content out there. Yeah, my so my version of the book that I have, I was reading a print version, um, had an afterword by a professor of English at University of North Carolina at Charlotte named Sandra Govan. And yeah, I read I read through it. It was really interesting. I can see see why this is a book that speaks to people and, and you know, that would be like taught in university classes and stuff. Oh, my God, I would have taken this. If, if anybody was offering a course on this when I went to college, God, I would have been like, what an easy A to take the Octavia Butler class. But like since I've read this book so many times, I've probably gone through like four or five paperbacks that I've just destroyed by reading them so much. And then I want to say that I had – I don't think I ever had a hardcover. I wonder if there ever was one. But yeah, I've had like – three or four different covered versions, like different covers on the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so like different editions. I don't remember the one that you're talking about. So there's like even more of those that I haven't seen. I had one that was three of the Patternist books in one book. I had that one. And then I got like the ebook versions and now I have the audiobook version. Like I have, I've bought this book so many goddamn times. It's really weird. So the, the version I have, it's by Time Warner Books. It says like aspect fiction on the spine, but like I didn't even realize until I was halfway through the book that it's actually like somewhat misprinted. The cover is um, like slanted. And so the words are actually like, oh, kind weird. of running off the right side. Like the words on the spine are being cut off on the top and like wrap around the f- front of the book. It was <laughs> a cheapskates, man. Jeez. Well, I bought it. Um, I bought it on abebooks.com, which is my favorite place to uh to buy books online because it's it's not big enough for you to hear about how horrible it is like amazon um (laughs) so i maybe this is sort of like i mean it was really cheap they must have been like uh you know a misprint that then just got like Um... or something but oh yeah so actually as i was flipping through my book um to find out the the name of the professor who wrote the afterword there's actually a really cute about the author at the end Um, So this is about the author. I'm a 53-year-old writer who can remember being a 10-year-old writer and who expects someday to be an 80-year-old writer. I'm also comfortably asocial, a hermit in the middle of a large city, a pessimist if I'm not careful, a feminist, a Black, a former Baptist, an oil and water combination of ambition, laziness, insecurity, certainty, and drive. I love that. Yeah. Um, And then it also... makes me so mad that we lost her. It's a tragedy. It also has a note. Um, in 1995, Octavia Butler was awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. So she died just like five years after she wrote this. That's so sad. She died young. I mean, she wrote so much awesome stuff, but just think about how much more awesome stuff she could have written. Exactly. Because if you look at somebody like Margaret Atwood, who continues to produce like high quality stuff, you know, she's like well beyond 50 now. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. I constantly think about that with Octavia Butler. Like, what did we miss out on? Because she died like it's infuriating. I know a few years ago, her, I think her estate published, um, like her personal journals Mm -hmm. and you could see like when she used, she talked about being a 10 year old writer and you can see like when she was a teenager and a 20 year old, her writing to herself and saying like, you will be a best-selling author of science fiction and fantasy you like millions of people will read your books you will get better you will like motivating herself basically yep read octavia butler like everybody should read octavia butler her she's got all kinds of great books okay well i guess that's the end of our conversation about this book we have a special announcement to make uh for the next several episodes we are going to be talking to guests about stories that matter to them Um, So I'm really excited about this. And first up, uh, next month, we'll be talking to Lonnie Diane Rich, who, if you've paid any attention to the show at all, we mention her basically every single episode. (laughs) And we're going to be talking to her about the TV show Moonlighting. Yeah. Uh, Did you watch Moonlighting ever? It was a 1980s... um... Uh, So as a two-year-old, did I watch Moonlighting? Uh, Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I can't yeah. say for sure that I didn't, um, <laughs> but I definitely don't remember. Um, I've actually, I've watched a few episodes on YouTube. So as always, you know, we're going to try and make the conversation fun, uh, even for people who haven't had a chance to watch the show. But if you're interested, um, it's not available streaming, but if you search like Moonlighting and then whatever episode name, I think pretty much every episode is available on YouTube. I'm going to try to tweet out some links to that stuff for people who are interested on our Twitter feed on HG story at HG Storycast, um, And then like we did for one of the previous shows, I'll try to include them in the show notes for as long as those links are good so that people can watch some of the episodes and get a, a sense of moonlighting, which is the thing that started off Bruce Willis's career. Yeah. It basically turned him from like a, an unknown actor into a, a super famous A-lister uh, got him into Die Hard. Yeah, he's one of the few people who made that transition back then between TV and and movie. And I watched Moonlighting. I was also a child like you, but mm-hmm. I'm I'm a little bit older than you. And my mom really liked Moonlighting. I'm sorry, Lonnie, to say that. But my mom really liked <laughs> Moonlighting and uh, I watched it with her um, sometimes. So I remember Moonlighting. And I remember you mentioned Die Hard. I remember the previews for Die Hard coming out and and a very young me like had a skeptical story thought. And like I saw like the big action, you know, like guns and all this stuff. And there was the explosion in the in the commercial. I I thought to myself, like the guy from Moonlighting, I don't think he can carry it off. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) So I was So, uh, you know, I had basically never heard of Moonlighting, except that I knew Lonnie had said it was like one of the main stories that inspired her to try and become a writer. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I've watched I've watched a few episodes um, recently to get ready for this podcast, and I had no idea like how important it was really for like the evolution of TV. Just like reading about all the oh, all the yeah. like really interesting ways in which they like broke the fourth wall and and were like really interacting with their fans in a meaningful way in like a pre-internet age it's like it's super fascinating and you know like I always like to think of Buffy as the show that really like changed television after you know watching and reading about Moonlighting I almost feel like Buffy wouldn't exist if it if Moonlighting hadn't come first just like Buffy paved the way for like a lot of the shows we know and love today absolutely and I know from talking to Lonnie a little bit about Moonlighting that she has a lot to say about those exact kind of thoughts. So I hope everybody tunes in to listen because I'm excited about the conversation we're going to have with her about writing and about moonlighting and television and exactly that, that evolution of what blazed a trail for what and how it's all unfolded. Mm-hmm. It's going to be fantastic. Um, and so Uh, No new reviews or haikus this week, but don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And if you do so, um, we will write a special poem just for you and read it on the air. Uh, And with that, I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at ChipperAllen. You can follow the show on Twitter at HGStoryCast and visit our website at HGStoryCast.com. And if you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit HGStoryCast.com contact or send an email to contact at HallowedGroundMedia.com. And we'll see you in February. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground Media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license. Shapeshifting woman anon you. Am I saying that? No, I'm not. An Yan Wu. An Yan Wu. Yeah. I don't know why I said it wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually I really like the Star Wars prequels. Good lord, don't. or or like what your experience was the first time you read it as soon as these two trains pass each other (laughs) (laughs) i think i'm tired enough that i won't cry i don't know if that's good or bad you know it only takes me like a couple of days with the audiobook especially with how much i'm working yeah and I just like cry through the whole book, like through the whole fucking book, especially the end. Like I just super cry. And I'm like, here's your package. <laughs> you sign right there. And they're like, are you okay? I'm fine. It's okay. The May. May- <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, oh, what the fuck is that thing called? Um, the. It doesn't even matter that what's that monster that like lives down in the ocean. I can't think of his name. It has like a squid face, but you can't describe him because you'll go crazy. Um, fucking. Uh, is this a uh, real monster or a fiction? No, monster? it's like a 
It's like um, from, I can't think of anything to do with this fucking thing. It's like from a writer from the 1920s. He was like a big racist and he was a horror writer, very influential, but he was a big nothing in his own time. And then he, um, not Lovecraft, fucking whatever. Yeah, Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, it was H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, Cthulhu? Yeah. Fucking Cthulhu. Fucking Cthulhu. Okay, (laughs) confession time. I have never read any H.P. Lovecraft. I just know that people are obsessed with Cthulhu, so... But after reading about moonlighting, no shit, it's, this is the, yes, no, this is the January episode. (laughs) We will see you in February. (laughs) The future.